This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Uh, we had this prayer when I was growing up that we would hold hands and say around the table, and, and it went like this. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let this food to us be blessed. And as I've studied the passage that we're looking at today, I'm not so sure Jesus would have been the best dinner guest. I think he was um, maybe a little bit intentionally, socially awkward, especially around dinner tables. He seemed to bring out his best work around dinner tables. I don't know that you'd want to invite him over for a meal. Um, I, I uh, was in college and was helping to lead in this ministry, and, and, and the people who were in charge of it um, made the offer to uh, my roommate and I to come over for dinner. And uh, they made the offer a week before we were supposed to come. And, and see, here's the thing. Uh, when you're in college, uh, or at least when I was in college, I couldn't remember when any of my papers were due, but I could sure remember if somebody invited me over for dinner. So that was lodged in the back of my head. It came to Monday, and we hopped in the car, and we drove over to their house. And it was one of those moments where right when they opened the door, you can, you can rest assured that they did not know you were coming. So we opened the door, and he looks at me like, what in the world are you doing here? Oh, yeah, I invited you over for dinner. That was all in his face. And he said, hi, how are you? We're great. And he said, how's it going? We're like, good. Are we still on for dinner? Uh, <clears throat> now, um, I've grown since then, and I can take social cues now. And so uh, now I probably would say something to the effect of, hey, if you forgot, we'll just swing by Taco Bell on the way home, and how about we do this next week? But that's not what we said. Um, he's, we were uh, painfully awkward and he went and asked his wife, you know, this is the conversation. I can just imagine what it might've been like. Um, hi honey. Um, I invited these two morons over for dinner, uh, and they remembered and do we have enough food? So I hear her say, I don't know. And then he said, he came back to the door and said, Hey guys, we've more than enough food. Come on in. Um, and so we're sitting around, and it was an awkward dinner conversation because they weren't expecting us. We were eating leftover soup with them, and it just was an evening to forget. <laughs> I think it would have been the type of evening that Jesus felt quite at home at. As I've read back through the Gospels, it's, it's as though... It's as though Jesus was one of the more awkward people that you would have ever met to come over for dinner. I mean, we have a lot of ways that we refer to Jesus. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, the Messiah, the most awkward dinner guest of all time. <laughs> Just doesn't seem to fit, does it? But I think it's true, and I think it's true because Jesus knew something that you and I know on this core level of our uh, sort of our humanity, and it's this, is that there's some lessons that we can only learn when we're uncomfortable. We're so, we're so um, caught up in the way that we do things that sometimes it takes God shaking us a little bit to stir up the waters of our soul in order to teach us new things, to lead us into new truth. And so here's what we're going to see in these few parables that we look at this morning is that Jesus puts people in, in really uncomfortable situations in order to drive home transformational truth. He puts them in uncomfortable situations and he does it intentionally so that he can throw these just softballs of truth out to them that they might be able to receive them. They might be able to receive them. 
See, before Jesus will plant truth in our life, he often tills the soil of our soul and stirs it up so that that seed of the gospel will take root in a soil that it can actually hold. And that's what he's going to do in this parable. He's going to stir up the Pharisees' perceptions of what it means to be religious and what it means to be um, a follower of God, somebody who loves God. He's going to stir it up a little bit, and then he's going to throw these seeds into the soil that they might take root. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 14 as we continue our series? We're uh, walking through some of Jesus' interactions uh, with the Pharisees in order to see him correct them and point them to the true meaning of the gospel. He does it beautifully. He does it gently at times. He does it awkwardly in this passage. Will you look at it with me? Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. And I would propose that this is one of the most awkward dinners of all time. And, 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 just for free. It's no coincidence that in Luke, this is the last time we see Jesus invited to any Pharisee's houses for dinner. Coincidence? I think not. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at a house of the ru- a ruler of the Pharisees, so this is somebody who's high up in the social pecking order of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. So they start off a little bit awkward. I mean, it's, it's a little bit creeper status to just be sitting back against the wall and watching what Jesus might do. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. This is a, a disease where uh, fluids will uh, pile up oftentimes in, in appendages. It's a painful thing. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I think, you know, we have all sorts of hobbies in our day. Um, some of us like to exercise. Some of us like to read. Jesus liked to tick Pharisees off by healing on the Sabbath. It was just one of the things. If he were to write like a bio of himself, what do you love to do? I love to tick Pharisees off by healing people on the Sabbath. But they remain silent. See, they've learned something from our time together last week. I mean, they, they've learned if we stick our foot in our mouth, Jesus is going to point it out. And if we say something that's ridiculous, he's going to correct us and it's going to be really painful. And so they just say, new tactic in approaching Jesus, don't answer his questions. Plead the fifth. So they do. He took them and he sent them, or sorry, but they remained silent. He took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So the first thing he does does is he insults their religious system. See, they had this view of the Sabbath where you couldn't do any work. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to poke at that a little bit. And he's going to say, all these rules you've developed... All these, all these pharisaical interpretations of God's word, what they're doing is they're actually preventing you from loving the people around you. And so he, he drops this, this bomb on these Pharisees, this truth bomb that says, hey, if your principles, if your interpretation of God's word, of God's law, cause you to prevent you from loving people around you, then your interpretation of it's way off. It's way wrong. 
And I mean, at this point in the dinner, you could see probably the Pharisees and their countenance drop just a little bit and then start to look at each other like, I'm not exactly sure I love what he said, but we can keep him around for at least the main course. He's poking at him, though. He's poking at him. He's, he's making this point that the way you interpreted God's word actually robbed you from the ability to love the people around you, which is what God's intent always was. Um, here's the way that Jesus is going to say a similar thing in the book of Matthew. Matthew or Jesus is asked, uh, what's the most important commandment? What's the number one? Of all 613 commands of God, which one is the most important? And this is the way he responds. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Quick time out. Martin Luther would say, if we could actually nail that one, there'd be no other laws necessary. He says, that is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. So Jesus says, I'll see you one commandment, and I'll raise you another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he adds in this sort of, um, this line that unpacks a little bit of just how important these two are at the very end. And he says, on these two commandments depend or hang all of the law and the prophets. Wow. Wow. So Jesus just said that if the way that we interpret scripture prevents us either from loving God or loving the people around us, then we miss the boat completely. And so in this painful, awkward dinner conversation, Jesus says to them, your religion actually prevents you from loving people, which is the very thing God's calling you to do. And so you're way off base. Um, I'm just going to float this out there and, and I'll let you wrestle with it on your own. But are there ways we do the same thing? I mean, it may not be the Sabbath, but are there ways that we interpret Scripture that may actually prevent us from loving the people around us? And I would push back and say, maybe that's not of God. Okay, let's move forward. The dinner conversation goes on. And he told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, now, now, so you're going to start to see Jesus rapid fire of, um, he's an equal opportunity insulter. And so he's going to start with um, the people who are invited to the party. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, you don't sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Let me unpack to you, for you just really quick what's going on. Um, when they had a feast or, or a meal like this back in the first century, um, the room would be set up so that there would be a, a smaller, sort of shorter table sort of in the center of the room. And then the guests of the meal would line up in sort of a half circle or half moon um, all around the table. They would lean down on their um, shoulder, you know, and rest as they ate. They reclined, which doesn't sound all that sort of like breakfast and lunch and dinner in bed. It sounds great to me. But anyway, um, so they would lean back and the best seat, the most prominent seat for the most powerful person was right in the center. And the other people would fall in line around them. 
And what Jesus says to the Pharisees is, you went and you picked the best seat. I watched you. You picked the best seat to try to establish your position, to try to establish your prominence, to to have a place of power, to make an influence and to have a difference in the lives of people. But you were mistaken. Translation of what Jesus says to them is, you're not as important as you think you are. You should have. So he gives them a different tactic. I love the way that Jesus isn't just a deconstructionist. He doesn't just say, don't take the best seat. But he actually says, take the worst seat. And if you're a special guest, if you're an invited guest of the host of the party, then he'll come and he'll take you by the hand and lead you in front of everybody to a more powerful seat. He says, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher and then you'll be honored in the presence of all. I mean, everybody's just going to go, oh, yeah, unbelievable. Maybe not like that. (laughs) Who sit at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be Exalted. Circle that, star that, underline it. Because what Jesus just said is that um, it's not a bad thing to want influence. He actually just teaches you how to get it. And he says the way that you influence the world around you is not by having power and lording it over people and telling them how powerful you are. It's actually a lot more subversive than that. And it's by taking the lower seat, by serving, by walking with people, not over and against people. And so he drops this sort of second bomb on the Pharisees. And he says, serving people is a thing that actually leads to influencing people. Not having the position of power and using it for yourself, but, but using it for them. He says there's two ways you can live your life. One, you can live it humbly and God will exalt you. He'll lift you up. Or you can try to lift yourself up. And did you know that scripture actually says that God works against you if that's your position? Look at the way that First Peter 5 and 6 read. Where Peter writes, clothe, yourself, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty right hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may lift you up. Here's the thing. Humility is a difficult thing, isn't it? Have you ever tried to be humble? You ever pulled up your bootstraps and said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to nail this humility thing. In fact, my goal is to be the most humble person in the world. I mean, play that out. How does that actually work? Like, what if you succeed? What if you become really, really humble and then you notice that you're humble? Don't you then become prideful and go, wow, I really nailed that. See, the way that we, and, and there's, a, there's a hint in First Peter um, that under his mighty right hand, the way that we actually um, live in humility is by living in reality in light of who we are in contrast to who God is. That's how we humble ourselves. We spend time contemplating the fact that God makes this whole globe spin and we do very little to make that happen. See, the only way that we get outside of humility is that we get outside of reality. 
Because the truth is, we're small. The truth is, we have very little control. And Jesus says, when you realize that, and when you allow me to elevate you, and allow me to work in your life, and when you serve people rather than trying to lord power over people, I'm going to lift you up. So I wonder who at, at your workplace, who in your home, who in your neighborhood, God might be calling us to, calling you to humble yourself in front of, to serve that he might give you influence to make a difference. Well, the dinner, awkward dinner, goes on. Because if it wasn't enough to insult their entire religious system and to insult all the guests at the house, I mean, there's one person left, and you just wonder if the host is sitting back going, yeah, you guys are morons. You deserve that. And Jesus says, okay, let's, let's move right down along the line. And he said also to the man who'd invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, now. Those guys that just elbowed their wife and said, see, we don't need to invite your family over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> not, what, not what it means. Not what it means, okay? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what's Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. He looks at this host and he looks at the people here and he says, every single person here is here because they have something to offer you. Every person here is here because you're going to get something back from them. But where are the people, I think he asks, where are the people who will give you nothing back? Where are the people who are just here because they've, they're valued, they're loved, they're people? Where are those people, he asks. And I think there may have been this just silence that fell over the party because he not only insults the guests, but he tells everybody there, or the host, he tells all the guests, you're being used. Because you're just here because you might return favor. I mean, at this point, maybe they think about escorting him out, don't you think? I mean, that hey, let's just call it an evening, let's call it a night. That was really fun. Um, we'll do it again never type of thing. Well, what's his point? I think Jesus says to the people at this table, hey, you, and to the host, you're a, you're, you're, you're a bookkeeper. You're keeping track of what everybody owes you, and at some point you're going to try to collect on that. Have you ever been with somebody that's like, hey, um, well, they, they owe me a favor, so I'll, I'll collect on it, and, and that'll be good for us. That's what these guys were doing. And Jesus throws out this, this truth, throws out this invitation to them where he says, what, what would happen if we were to ascribe value to people based on their inherent worth, not their net worth? Like, what if we just invited people that had absolutely no way of paying you back? And just a side note, just, isn't this a great thing for you and for me? Because the fact is that you have no way of paying God back for how good he's been to you. 
And it's that internal change that starts to happen in us when the gospel sinks down into our souls and actually reworks the inner working of our soul that frees us to actually see people for who they are and love them, not for what we might be able to get back, but because the God of the universe has done this for us. The God of the universe. And how much of the time do we operate based on what we might get back from people? How often do we keep score? Man, uh, guilty. Guilty. I, I love baseball. And one of the things that I love about, especially the playoffs, is they just get into the most ridiculous statistics. They're like, oh, my gosh. This guy hits. When it's, when it's daylight and the pitcher is throwing between 91 and 92 miles an hour and there's a wind coming out of the northwest, he's hitting 310. But if it's blowing 8 miles an hour, he's only hitting 305. And I'm like, wow, that's very, that's, that is a complicated method of keeping score. And I think we do the same thing with the people around us. And the only thing that frees you and I from, from valuing people based on what they can give back to us to valuing for them for who they are is to understand that Jesus isn't keeping score of you anymore. In fact, the scriptures are going to say that he took every written code and he nailed it to the cross. Wiped it, washed it clean. It says, and you, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive. Death to life. That's amazing. Together with him, having forgiven all of, forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So if Jesus isn't keeping score anymore, why are we? And he frees us to say, what if you started to look at people around you based on who they are, because I created them, rather than what they can give back? And I think that's how the dinner sounded. Silent. Until one guy, and you gotta love this guy, every party needs this guy. Okay? <laughs> and he goes, When one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, because nobody else was going to say anything. I mean, they've learned their lesson. But he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's a weird way of saying, isn't heaven going to be great? And it's sort of this moment of, you know, every eye goes to him and they're like, seriously, Billy? Like, you had to... You had to say something, didn't you? But but that, that's just, and it was this whole like uniting thing among them that they're all Jewish and so they're all going to heaven or so they thought. And so at least we can agree on that and rejoice in that and celebrate that. Someday we'll eat bread in the kingdom of God and it won't be as awkward as this dinner. (laughs) And it's this sort of softball to Jesus of, oh yeah, let's talk about the kingdom. That'd be great. Let's talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about the party. Let's talk about the feast that you all think you're going to be at. Let's talk about that. 
And it gets even more awkward. This is how Kenneth Bailey, the the great scholar who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes that I would um, highly recommend. This is how he thinks they might have respond that Jesus, they thought Jesus would respond to their statement like this. Those around the table would have expected Jesus to say something like, oh, that we might keep the law in a precise fashion so that when the great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all the true believers at his banquet. I mean, that's what they're expecting when he says, hey, how about heaven? They think Jesus is going to say, yeah, keep your acts together. Keep following the law, and someday you'll be there. And he graciously corrects their poor doctrine. And he says this. But he said, a man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, now just a quick time out. This was a very customary thing for a first century festival or party. He would, uh, the the, the host would go around the day before, a few days before, and invite people. They would respond, and he would then plan how much food he needed to buy. So that's what the guest does. He goes and he invites people. He gets an RSVP list, and then he has his barbecue. And he said, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So this is Jesus poking at the Pharisees, okay? They all began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Which is just a crazy, crazy, would never happen thing in the first century. See, buying a piece of property was a lengthy process. It was very involved. No one would ever buy a field without going to inspect the field, inspect the soil, uh, see what the rainfall was going to be, and see what they might be able to use said field for. Nobody buys a field and then goes and inspects it. You inspect it, and then you enter into the lengthy process of buying it. Well, it's not a huge deal to have one of your guests turn you down. That may have happened. But what you'll see happen is that all three of them turn him down, and it's this show to the master that we are fighting against you, we're not interested in your banquet, and we're out to humiliate you. Listen to the next two. And another said to him, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I, go to, can, I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. Well, same thing. No one would buy oxen without looking at them first. You need to know how they're going to pull in the field. You need to know how tired they're going to get. You need to know a lot about the oxen for them to be of any value to you. So it's another sort of crazy excuse. And here's the worst one. Here's the last one. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He's like, it's my wedding night. Thanks for the invite, but... This is better. Sorry. The reality of it is, the reality of it is, regardless of what the excuses are, they miss out on the best banquet they could have ever imagined. Regardless of what the excuses are, they're crazy in comparison to the offer that's presented to them. I started to think, man, Lord, what excuses do I make? 
What excuses do I make of, of not following you fully? And just a side note, isn't it great that Jesus describes being a follower of his as living at a banquet table? Satisfied. Full. Festive. Fun. A party. I make a lot of excuses, truth be told. And regardless of what they are, they're crazy in comparison to the invitation from the king. So he goes on. And so the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry. Now, just before you get thrown off by that, I think that's one of the best words in this whole passage we're studying. I think it's great. I think it's amazing. I think it's breathtaking that the God of the universe would care if you or I showed up at his party. So the fact that he gets angry shows that he's invested. The fact that he's angry shows that he cares. The fact that he's angry means that he would miss people if they weren't there. So you could circle that word if you wanted to. And he said to the servant, go quickly to the streets to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. We invited them all and there's still room at the party. There's still room at the banquet. There's still food to be had. And the master said to the servant, go into the highways and the hedges and compel people. Like, go and describe the banquet to those people. Go and tell them just how amazing the banquet is. Go and tell them what the food smells like and what the dancing is going to be like and what the party is. Go and tell them that the people who are far off on the outskirts, the people that have never been to a banquet ever in their life might come. So that my house may be filled. I love that. that. God's desire is that the banquet table will be full. And that you'd look down it and it would just go for maybe all of eternity with people celebrating the graciousness of the king. And talking about how good he is and how amazing the food is and how far his grace had to go to get them in the door. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He refers back to the Pharisees. What an unbelievable truth. What an unbelievable statement. That God's desire is that his banquet, his his table, his celebration would be full. And you'll notice, the only way anybody gets a seat at the table by grace. There's nobody there who deserves to be there. That's why he says, compel them because you're going to encounter people out on the highways and the byways who are on the outskirts of town for a reason. They're never going to believe that the grace and mercy of the king would invite them to the table. They're going to fight you, but you fight back with the love of the king that says, no, 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 there's a place for you. I saw your name tag on the table. I can guarantee you there's a place for you. He says, compel them. Come in. The grace of the king is sufficient to provide a place at the table for you. 
And you see, here's what Jesus tells these Pharisees is that grace not only gets you in to the party, to the festival and to the celebration, but it sends you out also. That you might be part of the master's servants that go and say to people, oh, the love of the king is unreal. When grace sinks into your heart, when you realize that you've been given a place at this table, bought, purchased, paid for by the blood of Jesus, it gets in you in a way that pushes you right back out the door to say to other people, come on, it's amazing. It's great. Let's fill the house because he's worth it. And you're going to love it. I love the way that Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Other versions say it compels us. It, it ties us up. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. So he says this love actually sends us out. You know, that, that meal was pretty offensive. I mean, you could probably have heard a pin drop in that room at any point in time. But I wonder, and I've been praying this week, that the story, the meal, might offend us afresh too. Because you're part of his church. You're part of the people who are at the banquet if your faith's in him. Well, here's what that means about you. That means that you were on the highways and the byways. It means that you were the blind, the crippled, the lame, the unable to do it on your own. And he called you to his table. And the only way you sit at his table is by his grace. And that's offensive, God. Come on. Only by your grace? Wow. timing of that was breathtaking. Only by your grace? Look at the way that Robert Capone puts it. He says, grace only works on the untouchable, the unpardonable, and the unacceptable. It works, in short, by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. It's offensive. Because if grace has worked in you, it means that you were dead. He didn't, do, he didn't do CPR. He raised you back to life. I had this friend that commented on my post. I put this on Facebook this week. And my friend comments and he says, um, yes, but who are the unpardonable, the untouchable, and the unacceptable? And his comment was, I think the church often gets this wrong. And I responded with two words. Grace and mercy of the king found me on the highways and the byways when I was unable, unacceptable, and unpardonable on my own. And his grace and his mercy drew me in. You're a follower of Jesus. It did for you And on maybe the second most awkward dinner of all time, 
Jesus gathers his disciples around this table on a Passover evening. And they're celebrating this religious festival that pointed to the pardon, to the forgiveness of sins. And in this very strange moment, Jesus took bread and he looked at his disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which I'm giving for you. They have raised a few eyebrows. In the same way, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is my blood, which I'm pouring out. The new covenant, which is coming, it's the forgiveness of your sins. Why? Because you're unable to do it on your own. And you're unable to make a way on your own. But Jesus, the great physician, the great Messiah, the great Savior says, but I'll pay your way. Dinner at the banquet of the king, bought and paid for in full. And your name tag on the table is probably sprinkled in the blood of the Savior. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for this feast. So as you come this morning, would you come knowing the way that God found you, how far he had to do to do it, to go to do it. And as you eat of his body and drink of his blood, which is his grace and is his mercy towards you, would it send us out into the world to compel those? Come to the feast of the king. Uh, The table is open to all who are followers of Jesus. If that's you, we invite you to come and to celebrate his grace and his mercy with us. If that's not you, I invite you to um, give your life to Jesus this morning, to put your faith and hope in him, to realize that he rescued you from the highways and byways and put you at his table by his grace alone. If that's not a decision uh, you want to make this morning, I invite you to just just sit in your chair and contemplate um, what the scriptures might say to you. Would you pray with me? This audio was from South Fellowship. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, visit southfellowship.org.